Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Future in Review podcast. I'm Barrett Anderson, the COO of Future in Review. And for those of you who have never heard of Future in Review before, we run the annual FIRE conference, which The Economist has called the best technology conference in the world. We are back in person in 2023, November 6th through 9th in Los Angeles, California. So we hope you'll join us. If you enjoy these conversations, you'll have the chance to meet many of these people in person, hang out and nerd out about the future of technology and where things are going. So the other arm of our business, Strategic News Service, provides its subscribers with the most accurate source of information about the future of technology and the global economy. Um, and if you are enjoying these conversations, you can sign up and become a member of Strategic News Service using the link below this video. So I am here today, I'm going to be talking to Steve Thrall. And Steve is the VP of Development for North America at Alexis Energy. And Steve and I have been working together for the last year, at least, mm -hmm. to create what we think is the most comprehensive plan to help the United States fully decarbonize the U.S. grid. So, um, Steve, let's talk a little bit about um, the the full de decarbonization idea. You know, a lot of people think that it's impossible, sure. um, including many utilities think it's mm -hmm. it's impossible to fully decarbonize because uh, renewable energy is variable, right? So yeah. you can't always depend on it being there given changes in weather or climate. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you think, why that, why you, why you might disagree with that? Sure. What's missing and what do we need to, to put in place in order for that to happen? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, on, on one hand, you're, you're correct that, that, and, and, you know, the, the opinion that decarbonization isn't easy is, is correct. It's, you know, you have intermittent variable resources and, and that's, uh, that's a complete paradigm shift to our traditional, uh, you know, fossil fuel based generation system. Um, but it's absolutely possible. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, probably most importantly that, that we do decarbonize and transition to renewables. Um, and it's really then just about finding, uh, I guess the asset mixes for different regions around the world that, that work. And, and it's about then balancing, uh, those different resources, whether that's you know wind uh, and solar and um, and um, you know all the different sort of renewables, so so you get into um, you know tidal energy or geothermal or you you know there's a big conversation of nuclear and, and but but finding all of the those asset mixes to be able to get us through um, to have the generation reacquire. Uh, and then, of course, the other side of that being sort of energy storage and, and how that what that looks like uh, to actually getting to 100 uh, percent renewables. We've seen uh, there's been lots of um, you know, research and, and reports that have come out over the last uh, five or so years showing that you know, we can quite easily sort of get to 80 percent renewables today. Uh, and that sort of um, you know, should be the goal today. Um, that sort of last, say, 10 that's or 15, 20 percent is things that exist. That's already. exactly right. Just put them in, mm -hmm. go for it. We're 80 exactly. percent of the way there. That's pretty good. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that, you know, that should be uh, and I think in a lot of ways is the sort of near term goal. Um, but um, but we also know that that's sort of not enough. It's, you know, ultimately we need to get to 100 percent renewables. Um, and the technology exists to do it. It's it's uh, it's more of a challenge of, of sort of existing infrastructure and economics behind some of these uh, 
the technologies and, and scaling things up. But um, but I'm confident that we're you know on the right track and, and it can be done if we all sort of are, are working together and and pulling on the same rope, so to speak. So the the name of the report that that we've been working on together is 100% renewable, uh, a plan for American energy independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I think, is really important. You know, people ask me sometimes, like, why did why do you spend so much time thinking about energy and grid infrastructure? And I or how did you choose to focus on this? And the thing that I always come back to is, you know, when you look at the grid, the grid is the baseline that allows the United States to decarbonize about 77% of its total emissions. Sure. So as we move forward and move, you know, continue to innovate in things around things like electric transportation, mm-hmm. manufacturing, um, you know, uh, all of these other factors that require a huge amount of energy, mm-hmm. we can electrify all of those things. But if we're electrifying all of those things and the grid itself is still being powered by coal and gas, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Right. It's yeah. like. It's just like transferring to another to another scenario. And so um, I think, you know, it's important to understand that when we talk about energy use in the United States, that makes up, a, you know, I think a sizable, but probably I think I think it's about 24 percent of total U.S. emissions. Mm-hmm. But by making the transition to 100 percent renewable energy here in the U.S., that actually creates a platform for us to reduce our overall carbon emissions by two thirds, or I'm sorry, about three quarters, 77% over three quarters. Yeah. Um, so it's really, I think, you know, it, it's really important for people to understand that who may or may not be interested in the grid. Uh, it's a it's a very complicated system and it's a kind of hard, there's a lot of moving parts that we've spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious if you can tell me, you know, so Australia has, done this much more uh, speedily than the United States. Sure. Through no surprise, it's, it's uh, you know, however, it shares a lot of the same challenges that the U.S. does. It's, it's a very large country. It's very disparate. Mm-hmm. Like, its cities are pretty spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, what is the solar penetration like in Australia now, and how does that compare to the United States? Sure. So... Just to sort of even just before I get to that, I'll just sort of touching on on your last comment, which is really the electrification of everything, right? So like at a macro level, decarbonization is about is is about transitioning to renewables, which then means that when you have all of this clean generation, then you can start to electrify the other areas of of the the economy and society that are still burning fossil fuels. So your your natural gas furnace, your gasoline uh, vehicle, all of those things, your your stove, there's a whole bunch of things that then when you have renewable energy, you can then, and this is all at a, again, at a macro level, this is all this innovation and this transition is happening simultaneously, right? So obviously you're seeing EVs, you're seeing all of that stuff, but then, but then you're seeing heat pumps and you're seeing the, you know, electrifying buildings. Um, and then, and all of that then contributes to how society decarbonizes at, at a macro scale. So it's, it's um, with, with then sort of the, the backbone of that being that this energy comes from renewable sources. Right. Uh, and that's how, that's how you achieve, you know, large scale decarbonization. So in Australia, uh, obviously a very sunny place, 
Um, and, and so, you know, a, a strong solar resource um, mm-hmm. from, from that perspective. And so um, Australia uh, sort of rewind 10, 15 years, um, maybe even more, maybe 20 years even, um, did so, some innovation from a policy standpoint with making some really sort of lucrative um, rooftop solar policy that allowed for feed-in tariff rebates. So it, it basically allowed them to, if you put rooftop solar on your house um, and you, you, know, you consume whatever energy you need from that, this generation from that system, but then you export that excess energy and, and the government would pay you um, quite lucrative uh, amount for that exported energy. And it was, a, it was just a subsidized program that, okay. that was really you know, meant to kickstart that solar industry. And it did its job. Um, it and so it worked really well. And, and so you know, the economics behind it uh, were really strong for, for a homeowner. Electricity prices in Australia are, are quite high. Again, it sort of goes back to um, you know, a relatively small population and a really big country and a lot of infrastructure lot, and all yeah, of that. So, of right? so electricity prices were, were um, uh, relatively high. Um, and so the economics then, when you start to sort of subsidize that, that feed-in tariff rate for exported solar, it made a lot of sense. So, you know, customers were able to, a homeowner could go and put solar on their roof and, and have a, you know, three to five-year payback. It made it a pretty sort of no-brainer um, step for most lots of homeowners to take. And, and so then that's, um, and, and then part of that, the follow-on to that obviously is then, um, you know, as the, the amount of rooftop solar installations increases and, and just this, the economy of scale of that, it brings down the price of that. And we've, you know, you've seen that globally, how the price of solar has, has dropped exponentially over the last 20 years. And so it's then really, it just continued to build and build that way and, and is now at a point in Australia where, where the country as a whole is at like a 30% saturation rate for rooftop solar uh, for, for residential you know, homeowners. Whereas here in um, the US, we have about 3%. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. At, at a whole. And then, you know, and then in Australia, in some of the kind of higher saturation states, so you think of like South Australia or Queensland, they're like getting closer to 50%, right? So wow. like one in two homes wow. uh, has solar on the roof. Um, in, in the US, you know, you think of, of Hawaii or California, those, you know, those are also states with high saturations, not nearly that high. Uh, you know, but are they, you know, one in five homes, be. something like that? Right. Totally, if they could be, because they so, also have strong solar resource there. So I want to back up just a second, because I'm realizing that, you know, one of the things that's really important about the plan that we have laid out that's really mm-hmm. different from what's currently happening in the United States mm-hmm. is there's a huge focus on transitioning to a fully two-way grid. Sure. So a lot of the um, policy and funding that's been passed recently by the federal government and the U.S. has been allocated toward what's referred to as centralized renewable energy. And that just means yeah. wind and solar farms that are yeah. all in one big place. Um, they're used to power the grid, um, but there are challenges to that, namely yeah. time, right? Sure. So it takes an average of 10 years to get permit siting and construction started mm-hmm. for a, a solar farm or a wind farm. Mm-hmm. Um, we have very little time to actually make this transition if we want to to you know have any chance of of kind of maintaining 
some of the U.S. climate goals. And so sure. part of a big part of why we're advocating for this two-way grid is because it opens up the opportunity to not just rely on wind and solar farms, which are really important, yeah. but to turn every U.S. homeowner into essentially a, a solar wind developer themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. And so to go back to Australia, Australia has done this, right? They really incentivized the d- deployment and installment of, of distributed renewables. What did they, what, what happened? Yeah, well, it really, I think it really comes down to it being, um, you know, the customer is the homeowner is the one that's made, driving these decisions, right? So yes, there was, there was the policy side in the early days and, and some of the subsidies that helped kickstart it all. But, but now it's all just about the economics and customers doing what they feel is best for them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not completely accurate to say that Australia is going all in on distributed energy and, and, and not focused on centralized generation or any of that. They're totally, absolutely still focused on wind and solar farms. Right. But what they're also seeing is because of this sort of combination of electricity prices uh, being quite high, cost of solar, you know, coming down and, and just mm-hmm. the, it's the economic business case um, that along with then sort of this resiliency side, right? You're getting into all of sort of the benefits of distributed energy and, and, and I'm sure we'll sort of get into some of that. It's certainly all in the paper and we will talk about it today as well, but, but then it ends up being, it's the customers that are deciding to put rooftop solar on, on their roof. It's less about like, you know, the government saying, Hey, we should go and drive a bunch of rooftop solar. This is the way of the future. It's more sure, about sure, customers but they did, doing they it. They did put a significant financial incentive in place. Yes, they did. To yes, they certainly that. did. And it was very, very effective at, at really sort of kickstarting that industry uh, in Australia and, and helping, um, I guess, helping customers understand the benefits and the value of distributed energy, both from sort of a resiliency um, and, and energy sort of control or security standpoint, but also just the economic side. Really, it's at the end of the day, it's the economics that drive all of these decisions, whether it's for, um, you, know, you know, a big financier who's doing a, or developer doing a winter solar farm or a homeowner that's putting five kilowatts in their rooftop. If the economics don't work, then none of it, none of it ends up happening. And so, so I guess what I'm trying to, to get at here is, you know, expectedly, mm. it turns out that um, the grid isn't really, most grids around the world, in fact, are not really built to be fully two-way. And I'm curious totally. if you can tell me a little bit more about what Australia learned about like limitations. Sure. By yeah. by incentivizing the deployment of so much rooftop solar. Yeah. So I mean, you know, fundamentally, what they what they learned is that there's um, there's very real limitations to the amount of distributed generation that can be installed. Um, the the grid, and this holds for grids all around the world, um, are all fundamentally. Uh, designed and constructed to have energy flow in one direction. All all grids around the world have fundamentally had centralized generation, right? And and so and they basically haven't really changed much since they were invented, right? No, like, they haven't. The grid, the grid, the whole sort of energy sector, you know, as a whole, um, apart from the last, you know, say decade, um, has not fundamentally changed. It's always been generation 
transport that through the transmission network, transport mm -hmm. that through the distribution network, gets to the end use customer. And so that energy always flows one way. And so when you start to, and this is kind of one of the key learnings out of Australia that's uh, really sort of been a, kind of a canary in the coal mine for the rest of the world when it comes to distributed energy is that the distribution grid has a really limited hosting capacity for distributed generation, meaning it has the limited ability to handle energy flowing that reverse direction, exported solar. So yes, you can consume all that energy on site, but if you want to export that energy, right, you have solar on your roof and you go to work during the day and your house isn't using very much energy, well, you're exporting that into the grid and that can still be consumed. There's still demand on the network, um, but if the grid can't handle that exported energy, which was the, the learnings out of Australia, then you end up wasting that energy, it gets curtailed. There's no great way to handle that. And so Australia was the first in the world to really learn that lesson. And being that when you, when you hit sort of around 20 or 30% saturation levels of rooftop solar, that ends up being about the limit to it. And anything excess of that, you start to have voltage rise and voltage volatility challenges. And, and the network ends up having to curtail that exported energy. And you're just wasting energy then. Right, which um, and is, so, which is, you know, if, if you're not familiar with um, like energy jargon, curtailment is basically just when too much energy is transmitted, it just gets dumped, essentially. Yeah, it just gets right. dumped. It, it can't it can't flow on the power lines uh, because the, the infrastructure isn't designed for it to flow in, in, in a two way fashion to have that reverse energy flow. And so, so it just gets sent into the earth. So there's a couple of solutions to this that we that we talk about in the report. One is I think we need massive investments in energy storage. And there have been a lot of innovations mm -hmm. taking place in the world of energy storage mm -hmm. to allow us to create energy storage systems that don't rely quite so exclusively on lithium, which is a rare earth mineral sure. metal that, uh, you know, can be harmful. A lot of people ask me about that when I tell them about when I talk to them yeah. about renewable energy. Um, I think there's a lot of concern about the effects of, of lithium mining on the planet in general. Of course, yeah. I'm not saying that we're about to transition away from lithium mining in any major way. I think they will continue to be, but we are making big strides in lithium recycling. There yeah. are a lot of companies that are making strides in that space. Um, and there are companies that are making a lot of strides in like, gravity-based yeah. um, energy storage systems. There are new um, batteries essentially coming into the market um, through a lot of federal federal funding yes. that do not rely on lithium. So I think there's a lot of excitement and a lot of opportunity in the air. It's probably going to be a few more years before those and and, and long duration storage, right? Lithium yeah. lithium ion isn't isn't very sort of well positioned for long duration storage. That's not what it's good at, um, and that's obviously you know to transition to 100% renewables, you need to be able to. Uh, have energy, energy storage that lasts more than sort of yeah. four or six hours, right? So that's a huge sort of advancement that's moving along, um, and and you know over the next several years that that'll sort of be overcome and and will um, be in the past. But but kind of currently so that's today, one that's part of it. The, the the storage of that energy, but then you also need to make some adjustments to the distribution mm -hmm. grid infrastructure itself. Yes. Yes. Because even if you're storing energy in an energy storage system of some kind, whether that's a battery or something else, there remain limitations to feeding that energy yeah. back into the grid, which makes it really hard for utilities to ever be able to depend on renewables for sure. 100 yeah, yeah. There's there's kind of there's kind of two parts to that really. One is that 
as you as you go through this process of of the electrification of everything, right? That's EVs, it's buildings, it's everything transitioning to electricity. Then you the demand obviously increases a lot, right? You're if you if you now have have uh, a heat pump and and an EV, you know, in your house, you're obviously going to consume a lot more electricity. And so, so the grid, the grid is fundamentally designed to meet peak demand, right? It has to, when you turn on, when you flip your light switch, you want your lights to turn on every single time. And so they build the grid so that for that, you know, 15 minutes a year, when demand is the highest, you know, everyone has their, their air conditioner on, they just got home from work, they start cooking and demand is the highest, you need to build the grid infrastructure to manage that. And so one of the challenges of the electrification of everything is obviously that then if you have that much more demand, right, everyone gets home from work and they plug in their EV, well, that's a lot of electricity flowing through the grid and you have to have the infrastructure that's built for that. So, so on the one hand, you have you have sort of the need for energy storage and sort of the orchestration of how you use electricity from the standpoint of, of, okay, you need to be able to manage the variability, the intermittency of the generation sources, the wind, the solar, the, you know, whatever renewables you're, you're generating electricity from. But on the other hand, it's then using, how do you use that energy um, sort of in, in the most efficient way to minimize the, the cost to the grid, how much infrastructure you need to build to deliver all of that. And that's where energy storage is also a huge piece of the puzzle, right? It's being able to store that energy to then discharge at different times, or you get, you know, you hear about, yeah, you know, electric vehicles and, and time of use rates with, well, it makes more sense to charge your vehicle in the evening because that's when demand is lowest. And you start to then balance out that, that load profile which can then sort of ends up the ultimately what that's all about is reducing sort of that peak demand infrastructure that needs to get to get built. So that's sort of that's one side of it. The other side then being this this two way distribution grid concept. Um, we're seeing that that as you electrify the home, the business, all of those things, that's those are all that's all connected to the distribution network. Mm -hmm. And and so if you can then site generation closest to the load, so for instance, rooftop solar, well, then you don't have to transport electricity as far. So there's, there's efficiencies in doing that. You don't need the same amount of, of infrastructure to do all of that. You can, you, know, you can fill a rooftop and export that energy and power your neighbor's house, or, or you fill a big warehouse and it powers um, the excess energy from from that system powers the apartment complex across the street, and you right. start eventually, to eventually. But the, I think the problem that we're talking about right now is that we can't do that, right? Totally, we can't do that because you don't have that two way grid. You run into that. Okay, well, you can only put twenty or thirty percent of distributed energy on the network before you run into that curtailment problem, and that's that's obviously a major issue that needs to be challenged needs to be overcome to really be able to capture the full value of distributed generation and and to transition to clean energy effectively so australia has dealt with this problem in some ways and they're starting to um experiment do some experimentation actually with the device that alexis your company has created yeah. mm -hmm. um but your company was created out of this challenge in Australia totally. by a yeah. former utility operator. Or That's exactly right. Um, yeah. And I'm curious if you can tell me more about 
or tell our, our audience, I guess, more about what Alexis does and, and. Yeah. Yeah. So, so useful. So you're right. Uh, the, our Alexis technology, we've been, you know, we're, we're more than 10 years into this. Uh, into and, this. and by the way, this is the reason that we're working with Alexis on this project, <laughs> because they are the only company that we know of that has made it, created a solution to this because Australia is so much further ahead. Uh, that's that, of, that's right. So, so one of our, um, one of our co-founders, he, was a distribution utility engineer for for the majority of his career, 35 years or something. And and he was tasked with, and and keep in mind, this is 15 years ago, but he was tasked with at the time uh, with understanding the impacts that rooftop solar would have on the distribution network. Again, this all lines up with with the government doing subsidies and and sort of the, the start of Australia's rooftop solar boom. And, And so as he started to dig into that, he came to understand, wait a second, the grid isn't two-way, that you have this hosting capacity issue. There's a lot of challenges with this. How do you, how do you deal with this? And there's fundamentally sort of two ways that, that you deal with this. One is you just curtail the energy. You just go, okay, well, when, you, when the grid is full, then you can't export anymore. Throw it away. That's it. it can't, the grid can't handle it. Uh, you'll melt the cables basically, or you'll blow up the appliances and you just can't do it. You, you need to just curtail the energy. The other way you do it is you upgrade the grid. You go and put in bigger infrastructure. You go and put in bigger power lines, bigger transformers, and, and to increase that hosting capacity. The challenge with- Which Australia um, did, right? Which Australia did, yeah. Australia took a lot of heat a decade ago for- um, what people said was, well, you went and gold-plated the grid. You went and spent billions of dollars upgrading the grid, thinking that that would solve the problem. But what you really did is you just marginally increased that hosting capacity. So yes, you increased that hosting capacity by 15%, but rooftop solar continued to get installed. And so in two years, you ran into the same problem. again. And then you went, uh-oh, we have to go and upgrade the grid again. So not a sustainable solution. Now the U.S. is starting to run into all of those challenges as well. Hawaii is well, an I excellent call, example call of that. Specifically because I think, you know, the U.S. is deploying the same strategy at the moment, yes. right? Like a lot yes. of what this new money is focused on is in addition to wind and solar farms, distribution grid upgrades, yeah. which are, to be honest, they're I want to be careful about how I say this because I think it's really incredible and important that Congress passed this um, landmark legislation to support the renewable transition. Mm-hmm. And I want to be realistic about the fact that the amount of money that was earmarked in that bill for uh, grid upgrades is nowhere near sufficient to even do fully upgrade yeah. um you know, the U.S. distribution grid in the way that Australia already has and which failed. It didn't fail. It, it, it worked, but it worked it, for a short time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so you're right. It's not it's not a sustainable approach to allowing high saturations of distributed generation. And that's what Australia found. Australia is now back to, OK, well, we just have to curtail because regulators and, and politicians and society said, whoa, 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 you can't go and upgrade the grid every three years. That's right. outrageous. And that's the same conversations that are happening in, in the US now. And, and they're going, okay, well, what do we do differently? 
which really then sort of brings us to the Alexis Energy side of things and 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 the solution that that we decided that we needed to develop. Um, and so so that's what we did. So we fundamentally took uh, sort of the engineering principles from technology, voltage management technology that was used on transmission networks. Mm-hmm. And we we reinvented it and miniaturized it to be used on the distribution network. And so what it means is that we're able to, um, by managing the voltage volatility of solar export, we're able to then increase that hosting capacity to 100%. So we get the, we capture the full utilization out of the existing distribution grid infrastructure. So instead of running into the, the curtailment hosting capacity challenges at 20 or 30%, we're now able to increase that hosting capacity to 100%. When you it say means 100%, that you have a two-way that, grid. What does that mean? Does that, that mean that, that 100% of households can install distributed energy? It means that there's still there's still physical limitations to how much energy can be can flow on the distribution grid infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But instead of that physical limitation being say 20% DER saturation level, it's now hundred percent. So we exponentially increase the amount of energy that can flow without having to go and do grid upgrades. It essentially means that you can install so much more distributed energy and be able to capture the full value out of it before you'll ever theoretically need distribution grid upgrades. Now, is there a point where, where you would need to go and, and reconductor a line? Yes, maybe, but it's now so far down the path of when that would be the problem that you're faced with instead of it being the problem today, that it means that you can then totally change the way that you use distributed energy and the value that it can provide in sort of this future, this clean energy mix as you transition to 100% renewables. So what I'm hearing from you is that um, there's still a limit at some point, but uh, it buys us a certain amount of time, essentially. Instead of of utilizing 30% of your distribution grid, which is like insane when you think about it, right? If you were an investor and you said, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pay, or I mean, this is essentially the job that regulators are doing with taxpayer money. Where you right. go, okay. Yeah. We're going to approve you to do a million dollar grid upgrade. And you're only going to utilize 30% of that money instead of utilizing a hundred percent of it. It just doesn't even, it doesn't make sense. So it there, basically there needs to be a the full capacity of the grid itself. Yeah, you get the full utilization out of those grid assets, Whereas, whether it's the existing grid assets or you've gone and upgraded the grid or done whatever, but you get the full utilization, 100% hosting capacity uh, out of that, which means two-way energy flow, which means you can use install a lot more distributed generation, batteries, EVs, all of those things um, that then, and you can then use them in more innovative ways to, uh, to help get to 100% renewables and, and balance the grid. Now, so how many, like if I'm a utility thinking about putting an Alexis system in place, how many of those do I need? Like, yeah. So like, let's say I'm, I'm trying to outfit the city of, and I, and I know you, you know, you all have been doing, you've been working with Ikea to install your devices, to turn their stores into like energy factories. Virtual power plants. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Virtual virtual power power plants. plants. Um, and you're doing some tests um, in Queensland. 
That's right. Maybe four or five test sites that, that the Australian government is, is deploying across Queensland. Yeah. But if I'm trying to power, for example, the city of Los Angeles. Sure. I'm a utility. What what does that look like? How do, how many Alexis devices would they need? Sure. So, I mean, the last mile infrastructure in Australia is a little bit different. Uh, and, and when you say last mile, it essentially means sort of from... Um, from the substation or the distribution transformer onward. It's just a different architecture, although it's all sort of fundamentally the same. But in, I'll use an Australia example for it. Mm -hmm. So in Australia, for 100 homes, which is typically how many homes are serviced from a distribution transformer, we, we require one Alexis device installed on that, on that feeder, and it fixes the voltage problems and the host capacity challenges for all 100 of those homes. So it's incredibly And how much does a, a single Alexis, do? I mean, clearly we're hoping to, you're a young company, as you grow and scale, the price is going to go down. But what is, yeah. what is, what is the cost of a single Alexis device? $10,000. Okay. It, like it's, it's nothing in the grand scheme of things compared to, it would be compared to hundreds of thousands, a million dollars to, to fix the voltage with sort of traditional grid upgrades for those hundred homes. That's pretty good. That's a pretty. I would say that's a pretty good return on investment. And, and and you would end a traditional grid upgrade. Maybe you know again. So you're at that twenty or thirty percent hosting capacity limitation. Maybe that gets you to fifty percent mm-hmm. or forty five percent, as opposed to a ten thousand dollar Alexis device, and you're at hundred percent hosting capacity. So it's it's not even it's not even really comparable. It's a it's a complete no brainer from that side of uh, sort of that yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so so I want to talk to you a little bit more about um, you know, one of the the advisors that we recruited that who who generously volunteered his time uh to create this plan is was Amory Lovins, who was mm-hmm. one of the was a co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Mm-hmm. And RMI um he is emeritus, so he's no longer there in an active role. But uh, the RMI has just come out with this um, new proposal and plan called uh, VP3, focused on virtual power plants. And they're talking yes. about how virtual power plants can help with the U.S. transition to renewable energy. It's very much kind of in line with what we're proposing in, in the plan that we put together. Certainly. Um, what is a virtual power plant? What does that mean? Yeah, so so a virtual power plant, and there's a lot of different definitions. So if you were to Google it, you would probably come up with five different definitions. But when I think of a virtual power plant, it's essentially an aggregation of DER resources that can that can be aggregated to provide DER being distributed energy resources. Distributed energy resources. So that might be rooftop solar, that might be a home battery, that might be an EV, that might be a smart thermostat or uh, you know your pool pump or a smart plug. There's so many different things, devices, IoT type devices that fall into this category of 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 being um, a DER asset. Mm-hmm. And so the idea with a virtual power plant is that you can combine all of these all of these devices that all on their own just can you know just control a tiny little thing it's that it has no impact on the grid but when combined all together they can have a tremendous impact on on the grid 
and primarily from so in in sort of the eyes of of the the U.S. market and and RMI, they're really coming at it from a energy efficiency demand response, load flexibility side of things. So being able to, for instance, um, if the grid is stressed because, uh, you know, it's a hot summer day uh, in California and everyone's air conditioning's on and everyone's going to come home from work. Inflation and keeps in. going up. Everyone, <laughs> all these tech companies are cutting jobs. Exactly. So, you know, when you all come home from work and the grid knows, okay, we're going to have a peak demand event and, and we don't have, we're going to struggle to to supply everybody with enough electricity to meet all of the needs that they want to for this one hour window, say in the middle of August, right? Then you can call on these assets. They can all be, you know, they're all connected to the internet. They can be, and, and the utility can call on those assets and say, okay, we want to remotely turn down everyone's air conditioning by two degrees, mm-hmm. right? The idea being that you're never going to notice right? You're sitting in your house. You're not going to know that, that your air conditioning got turned down. And yet by doing that on aggregate, you can reduce the peak demand on the network, which means that the utility doesn't have to spend so much on infrastructure, there's savings there, and the savings get passed on to a customer. And so, so that's sort of bun- bundling all of these little tiny kind of energy storage devices that would be yes. tough to rely on for utility yes. on their own. Yes. Complicated, but taking that out of the utilities responsibility so that they know that they have access to an aggregate of that, That's right. Okay. Or in a different application, and this is how it's being utilized in Australia and not yet uh, sort of fully utilized in the US, but we're on the pathway to this from sort of a policy standpoint is, is our IKEA Lexus microgrid. That is a virtual power plant. And what it is, is is a large microgrid, a large power plant that's built in on the rooftop in the parking lot of Ikea, but it's in the urban environment. And the utility can call on those assets, primarily being the energy storage that's there, Mm -hmm. to support the network. But not just from a, a demand response load flexibility standpoint. So it's not just calling on that to say, okay, we want... We want this battery to power IKEA so that IKEA is not drawing energy from the grid and that'll reduce the demand on the grid. Instead, and this is sort of a, a key difference to the US Australia market that's evolving and starts to really paint the picture of what, what a, a full virtual power plant can look like. The, the utility in Australia is able to call on the battery to export energy onto the network. So it can go, okay, we need more energy or we need grid services. We need frequency control and ciliary services. We need, um, you know, we so need more energy. The, R- the RMI example is not quite there yet. As far no, as it's not. The RMI it's example- It's just turning and, off people's devices. It's really just, it's just load flexibility. So it's just managing the load side. Right, it's managing the, and, the demand the demand side rather than the supply side. Right, so essentially, like put really simply, it's about reducing the amount of energy that is being that a consumer is consuming from the grid at that time. And when everybody does that in aggregate, then less energy needs to flow through the grid, which means you don't need as much infrastructure to deliver that that amount of energy. There's less energy needs to flow, and it's and that's all being done because of these VPP devices in aggregation that are able to do that. The other side of that equation, and this is what Australia has figured out, and the U.S. is figuring out. This is what what FERC Order 2222 is about, and this is the evolution of 
of allowing capturing the full value stack out of DER assets right. is and to actually way, so be able to export that energy. Just just to cut in, because I don't think that everyone is necessarily uh, as much of an energy nerd as you and I are. Um, <laughs> FERC, for those of you who are not familiar, is the federal regulatory body that oversees U.S. transmission grid infrastructure, yeah. essentially. IS, ISOs and RTOs, yeah, which again, sorry. Yeah. To be Independent system around. operators and regional yeah. transmission operators, which are responsible for moving energy from the point of transmission in the big grid to... Yeah. Uh, to wherever it needs to be for yeah for. correct through through the bulk the bulk energy markets and through the right. wholesale markets yeah that's right so that ends up being that's where you start to get into the realm of being able to capture the full value out of distributed assets and develop virtual power plants and in, in this case that'll that allow you to replace large centralized generation or in in a lot of ways it's it's not so much about replacing it it's about easing the stress on it, right? So if you're going to electrify everything and have this huge increase in the amount of energy consumption, you're seeing it in the headlines every day with, well, we don't have enough transmission infrastructure. We don't have well, enough. I, yeah, I think one of the things that people miss a lot of the time is that, and I've heard this from utilities. So we've talked to a lot of utilities as a part of creating this plan and trying to understand what their challenges are. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they, they sometimes complain about is the fact that people expect, you know, I'm getting... I'm putting solar panels on my house. I'm switching to all of these different devices. I have an EV and yet my power bill is going up. Sure. And um, I think there's, you know, it, it is important for people to understand that the electrification of everything and, and the transition to 100% renewable energy does not mean that you're not going to have a power bill anymore. It will yeah. go down significantly, but as we make this transition globally, more and more of the things that you were paying for in other ways yeah. are getting transmitted to your energy bill, right? Yeah. So you don't have to buy gas anymore, but you do have to pay for the energy that powers your vehicle, Sure. right? And yeah. so a big part of the, the reasoning behind this two-way grid is it allows you to fully use as much renewable energy as possible to decrease the cost of your energy usage yeah. Yeah. at a time yeah. when it would otherwise be going up exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, but it also allows us to make this transition to a fully two-way grid much more quickly. And I think, you know, the important part of this conversation about Alexis and Australia and learning from Australia's, um, you know, their, their experiments and what they've learned already, we want to make sure that we don't, spend a lot of time making the same mistakes in the US that totally. yeah. have already been made. We know that um, there are certain challenges that they've come up against in Australia that we will come up against eventually. And so therefore, yeah. let's be smart about what we're doing. Yeah. Let's deploy these low cost, um, high impact solutions like Alexis mm -hmm. that buy us time and allow us to fully utilize the grid infrastructure that we have mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. so by us time to make these grid upgrades lets us use the full infrastructure lets us make the transition much more quickly and therefore builds up the infrastructure that can be used and aggregated into virtual power plants or uh does the virtual power plants not actually also apply to like the ikea model 
where it's deploying energy back in. It does, totally. right? Yeah, so it's good absolutely. Both ways. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, well, and it all—it it, kind of goes back to to the start of our conversation where we said that you know we were talking about Australia and and why did Australia have this big boom and what's different and some of that and I said well it's all about it always comes back to the economics right it's it's consumers will be whether it's a, a huge solar farm or a small uh, you know rooftop solar system right. on your house this is it's America going to be driven and by the we economics. like money. Totally. Who doesn't? <laughs> and so, so rooftop solar is the cheapest form of energy. Like that's like full stop. And that is what's driving customers in Australia and Hawaii and California mm-hmm. to install, to install rooftop solar. Not only it, like that takes out the whole side of the resiliency piece, right? Where customers are getting tired of well, there's a wildfire in California and you right. you just shut down the your transmission power network goes off or your, and I don't have power for five days. So they put rooftop solar and a battery on and they go, I'm not dealing with that anymore, whether it's the economic side for a business or it's, or it's a homeowner, right? So like there's all of those pieces as well that start to really show the value of distributed energy. And, and the reason that it's taking off and booming is because customers are making those decisions. Right. And customers are saying, I want to put rooftop solar in my house to power my EV. And then the savings just start to really, really grow from there. Right. And, but so you do, Steve, you still run into this problem of the two-way grid that needs to be fixed. Otherwise it costs too much. I, I think that's a, that's a fantastic point. And I, I, um, I think we should end there. And I would just say, <laughs> part of you know we've done it we've talked about a lot of different parts of the grid in this conversation yeah. <laughs> um and i hope that it's been useful for everyone who is watching um i one of the things that i think is really important to emphasize as we move forward one thing that we haven't talked about in full but you just kind of started to reference is mm. when we talk about american energy independence yeah. we're not just talking about yeah. independence from fossil fuels we are talking about national security independence and the ability for the U.S. to move forward without having to rely on countries like Russia or Saudi Arabia being able to set artificially um, sure. energy prices. That or climate emergencies or cyber attacks. Every or, day, right? Or cyber attacks or storms or climate disruptions, which mm-hmm. are going to become more and more mm-hmm. common. Um, but we're also talking about the independence of the average American individual sure. to be able to control their own power supply, right? Yeah. And yeah. what the infrastructure is that would need to be put in place in order for that to work. Yeah. Um, and I, I think just sort of as a, as a last sort of comment, I think part of what we're seeing in, yes, it's this the, the energy transition and the transition to renewables, but within that, because it's really, uh, you know, it's causing a, a paradigm shift in how, or a rethink of how do you, how do you set up our energy policy, our energy structure, the markets, all of those things. And, and what keeps sort of bubbling to the surface of it is the need for it to be customer centric, right? That is what society, that is what customers are saying is that I want to have control over my energy. Right. I want to. We all want to be able to have control over and, and. You know, if I highly recommend reading the report, there's lo- a lot of additional details in there about things that are blocking that. Like yeah. at the moment, in many places, it's actually illegal for you to create energy and then yeah. share it with your neighbor. 
Um, so we have a lot of recommendations about all aspects of that. Um, and yeah, I, it's so Steve, I want to thank you publicly for, for Mm -hmm. your, uh, general, uh, patience in, in helping me understand the U.S. grid over the grid infrastructure in general over the last It's a complicated space. Um, yeah, Um, but you've, uh, you've, you've done a pretty good job of bringing yourself up to speed. Well, thank you. And we hope that this helps everyone else out there understand what's going on, what's really happening in the U.S. energy market. Um, We highly recommend, so I'll put the link to the report um, in the comments of this video or the description of this video, but um, we also highly recommend reading that RMI paper about virtual power plants. Yeah, very Um, complimentary, very lot of alignment. We have also included a whole, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, not to mention that um, this is a report that I co-wrote with Robert McClure, who is a, an independent investigative journalist um, and co-founder of Investigate West, a nonprofit media company in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but he and I have included a whole list of other reports that you might find interesting if you are indeed wanting to go down the energy <laughs> rabbit hole. It's certainly a rabbit hole, yeah. So, uh, Steve, thanks so much for your time. And uh, I look forward to many more energy nerd out sessions with you in the future. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Barrett.